This is Dave Green at East Line Studio, where we produce the Historian's Podcast. Bob Cudmore will have the latest edition of the Historian's in just a few seconds. The Historian's Podcast depends on your donations to continue. You may donate online at GoFundMe.com slash The Historian's, or send a check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. The Historian's is also heard on RISE, WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled WMHT.org and on SoundCloud, search East Line Studio. And now, on with the show. This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to welcome best selling history author Ken Davis. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, this is a novelty for me. We've talked on the radio many times, so this is a new one. Yes, we're doing the podcast, and we're doing it via Skype. I tell you, we're getting so modern, I can't stand it, Ken. Uh, well, let me uh, go hitch up the horses to the wagon and, uh, you know, get the get the telegraph wires going. But, uh, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating how the technology uh, changes, but uh, the basic idea doesn't. We all want to talk to each other and share ideas, and it's great that we're using this new technology to do it. I use Skype a great deal. This is a little bit off the subject here. Mm-hmm. I use Skype a great deal to go into classrooms around the country and the world. I've done about 150 classroom visits over the past four years, and it's really tremendously exciting for me to go in and talk to students, uh, middle school up through high school, about history uh, the teachers are desperate to have the technology come into the classroom to help them get their students excited about history. And so it's been a, a really interesting learning experience for me. And so let's, uh, let's do it here as well. I know that one of uh, your reviews uh, cited uh, the fact that uh, you come across as, uh, as somebody's favorite uh, high school history teacher. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Bob, because I, uh, when I was in high school, certainly, and well into college, I did not have a notion that I would become a writer. Uh, it, it, uh, even though I was a, uh, a reader from the time I was a kid growing up in Mount Vernon, New York, just outside New York City in Westchester, uh, in public schools there, I was a tremendous reader, big user of the public library but never had the idea that there was actually a person behind the book that one could become a professional writer. And it uh, was really only as I was in college and doing some writing for the college newspaper, somebody eventually read some of my work while I was working in a bookstore and said, hey, you shouldn't be selling books, you should be writing them. And that's how I got my start a little more than 30 years ago, which is hard for me to believe that I've been doing this for 30 years. But um, it's... um, you know, I've tried to use my books in a way as a classroom, and I think without consciously thinking about it, I've always written books that sort of uh, reflect the way I would approach the subject if I were standing in front of a classroom. So the Don't Know Much About series, which most people know me for, Don't Know Much About History, uh, written in a question and answer format, perfect way to get it, uh, mm-hmm. get students, get it readers interested, but it's written in a conversational, easygoing style. It's approachable, but always the emphasis was on this isn't boring. This is stuff that's really interesting if, as long as we talk about real stories of real people. Mm-hmm. And that's the connection to the new book called The Hidden History of America at War, which is not in the series and not a question and answer format, but it is, once again, real stories about real people in real places. 
And again, I turned to the Internet because your new publisher is Hachette, and I didn't know how to pronounce it. But did you know you can go on YouTube, and there's a young woman who does book reviews, and as a service, she she does a piece where she tells you how to pronounce the names of publishers. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Somebody did say the other day when I was being interviewed that I was it was Hatchet Books. Um, it is not Hatchet. It is it is Hachette, it's a, 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 a owned by a French, but it's an American company with a, a French, uh, some French ownership. So that's where the Hachette comes from. Very can, large French uh, magazine and book publisher with a, a U.S. operation. Ken Davis with us, and as he just said, his uh, newest book, The Hidden History of America at War, Untold Stories from Yorktown to Fallujah. Let's go back to the American Revolution. Uh, we've had a series of uh, podcasts about uh, the revolution, uh, and in particular, we've got a lot of response to a podcast we've done about a conference that was held in our neck of the woods in the Mohawk Valley, about the Mohawk Valley and the revolution. And uh, you note that Washington, General Washington, gets credit for winning the revolution, but he probably wouldn't have without, A, the French Navy, B, foreign loans, and C, sacrifices by black patriots. Can you explain that? Well, absolutely, Bob. Most of us do learn in school, uh, Washington won the Battle of Yorktown, October 1781, we don't know too many of the details about that. In the new book, America, uh, The Hidden History of America at War, I'm going to tell you how he did it. And the fact that it, it was largely because of a naval battle fought by the French off the coast of Virginia that Washington wins that battle. And in that naval battle, there were no American ships. We had no real navy at the time. Uh, of course, up, up uh, in your neck of the woods, you know that uh, a guy named Benedict Arnold once built a navy on Lake Champlain that was pretty... Uh, significant, but in the big picture, it, it, uh, this was not uh, an important aspect of the American uh, war effort, but Washington knew how important it really was. And the French Navy that wins what was called the, the Battle of the Virginia Capes was really instrumental in Washington being able to uh, trap and then defeat this British army in Yorktown, Virginia in October 1781. And I tell the story of that battle in the first chapter of this book. The other thing that we don't learn about that battle is the fact that after it was over, one of the first things that Washington set about to do was recover thousands, I mean thousands, of African Americans who were trying to escape slavery by going over to the British side. And Washington made a part of the, the surrender agreement the fact that this property would be returned uh, to its rightful owners. And by property, he meant slaves. Curiously, they included 17 people from his own Mount Vernon plantation, as well as some from Thomas Jefferson's plantation. You alluded to the, uh, the fact that there were black soldiers at Yorktown. Indeed, there were. One in five of Washington's men during the revolution was black. Uh, this was the, uh, had been called the forgotten fifth. Uh, Washington did not want to enlist black soldiers at the beginning of the revolution. The demands and the inability to get uh, enough recruits uh, made him change his mind on that. So for instance, the first Rhode, Rhode Island regiment, which was composed of uh, enslaved men who were given a chance for freedom if they would enlist, uh, fought at Yorktown and fought bravely they get left out of the school books. So this isn't about tearing anybody down, but telling the true story because there are real stories of sacrifice and courage and, and loss. 
And we should know the full story because it's a story that all of us can appreciate. Well, continuing the theme of African-American soldiers, we get to the uh, Civil War. You say that Lincoln initially resisted letting blacks join the Union Army. He did. He was opposed to it in 1861 when he first called for uh, a mere 75,000 volunteers for three months, uh, thinking they thinking that uh, Lincoln thinking, as many people did, that this war would be over quickly. Of course, it then dragged on for four years. By the time Lincoln announces the Emancipation Proclamation, which is in January of 1863, many people, including uh, men like Frederick Douglass, are saying, allow the black man to fight for his freedom and, and you will unleash a great force. And, of course, uh, black soldiers then were allowed to enlist and served very, very ably during the war, usually in many cases at less lower, lower pay and often doing the most uh, ghastly details, you know, get, picking up the bodies on the battlefield, but also uh, serving with incredible courage and, and successful success in battle. What is very, very brutal about this, and I talk about this in the second chapter of the book, which is about uh, Petersburg, Virginia, and the long siege there, is that um, African-American soldiers uh, knew that they would not be taken captive if, if they uh, surrendered. Uh, so they fought fiercely to the end. But they also traded that over to the other side. And they knew that uh, Confederate soldiers had killed black prisoners at places like Fort Pillow. So they also were not accepting surrender. This is, again, the, hit, the hidden history, the untold stories of what war is like. And that's what this book is really about. It's not about armies maneuvering over the landscape or what a general, uh, what kind of generals plotted the strategy, but what life is really like, what battle is really like for the men, mostly men in these cases, who are involved. Who fights our battles? Who goes to war? Mm -hmm. That's why it's so important to, to focus on, for instance, the African Americans who served in the Revolution and in the Civil War, because those stories were largely overlooked, certainly when I was growing up. And what about the, the soldiers after after the war? This is something I, I know uh, little about, I mean, except from modern-day news reports. Uh, it seems in recent years uh, we've been seeing reports that the veterans' care uh, could be better than it, than it is. And you say this has been a, a constant uh, throughout history, or, or has it? I mean, that, it seems strange even. Uh, why, why wouldn't the, the country uh, seek to care for its veterans? That's a really good and important question, and it's a question that I focus on a great deal in the hidden history of America at war because for hundreds of years, and certainly it's true today, we pay uh, tremendous lip service to the service and uh, sacrifice of men and now women who wear the uniform, but the real history is, is not so pretty. Uh, both while the conflict is on and afterwards, we've always given the, uh, the, the men and women who serve the short end of the stick. During the American Revolution, Washington had to beg to get his men properly outfitted and uniformed. We know the stories of, of men at Valley Forge uh, who are shoeless. We have letters, Washington writing, begging for, for cloth to, uh, to, to uh, uniform his men. He talks about one of his own servants, in fact. We, we assume it's William Lee who was with Washington uh, throughout the Revolution, uh, practically being naked. Uh, 
someone refers to Washington's army as uh, poor, uh, shoeless, uh, Negroes and children and old men. During the war, that was true, and then after the war was over, it became even a more pronounced problem. There were men who actually started to mutiny in, uh, uh, in New Jersey and Pennsylvania after the war because they weren't getting paid. Mm -hmm. And they actually chased Congress out of Philadelphia in 1783. They left Philadelphia for several months because the men were about to mutiny. Washington had to put down a very, very serious uh, uprising uh, or cabal within his, uh, his officers' ranks, very close to you in Newburgh, New York. It was called the Newburgh Conspiracy. As close as we've probably come in our history to a, a true military coup, and this is one of the things that has to be most admired about Washington, this was a moment when he certainly could have taken up the sword, gotten on the horse, and said, I will lead you and we will take over this country. And that's what many of the founding fathers feared from an army. So part of this, and this is the story I tell in this book, is the great mistrust that existed in early America about soldiers and professional armies. They were seen as the dregs of society, not to be trusted, a threat to the republic. And that's carried right down to modern times where we see uh, controversies like the Veterans Affairs situation and uh, the, um, the lack of proper body armor in Iraq when the men go into Fallujah. I write about the fact that in uh, one of the chapters is about uh, Way in the Tet Offensive in Saigon and in, in Vietnam where the Marines go into Way and they don't even have maps. They have to get some maps from a gas station. So this has always been a theme through American history and it's one of the stories that I think is most important to tell. Perhaps the, base, the best example of, a, of an exception to that is the GI Bill after World War II, which, of course, mm -hmm. um, is largely cre credited with creating a, a, a helping create the middle class and lifting up this country after World War II was over and uh, providing college educations to all those men and many women who served. We read and hear and see a lot about uh, World War II, but uh, again, I, I really wasn't aware uh, of this issue uh, to the extent that you uh, talk about it in your book. As the war in Europe was was ending, the the Russians basically took Berlin, and uh, there were a couple of things about that that, that you uh, write about. One is that uh, General Eisenhower, in a sense, allowed that to happen. Although you know, pro you know, probably would have been difficult for the U.S. to do much about it, uh, but. And also, when the Russians got there, they were just uh, merciless to the uh, uh, German citizens. Uh, Bob, one of the, the most ghastly chapters in World War II history is the fall of Berlin. It is a story I never heard growing up. Uh, uh, growing up in the time that I did, um, we didn't talk about what the Soviet Red Army did in World War II because it was the Cold War. They had become the enemy. So we didn't talk about the extraordinary experience of the Russian soldiers, the Red Army soldiers in World War II. And this uh, is fo the focus of the chapter called Berlin Stories. 27 million Russians died in World War II. Um, that's an astonishing number. That's about a third of all the people who died in World War II. And we're talking about civilian and military casualties there now. Um, this was left out of our good war narrative because the Soviets had become our enemy. But Eisenhower uh, did allow Stalin to take Berlin. 
Uh, there were a couple of reasons for that. He didn't think it was a strategically an important uh, uh, site for him to worry about. He wanted to continue pushing through uh, through Germany. So the Red Army was always already much closer, so it was a practical decision. But there are some other important things that I focus on in this book. One is the fact that Eisenhower did not know about the Manhattan Project, and Stalin did. And Stalin knew that the Germans were develop developing atomic weapons as well, and he knew that they had scientists and uranium in Berlin, and he wanted to get his hands on those. He also thought it would be tremendous propaganda value for the Soviet armies to show that they had raised the flag over Berlin, that Hitler was there. He committed suicide in the last days of the war as the Russian army, uh, the Soviet army is closing in. So it's a fascinating but ghastly tale because, as you mentioned, hundreds of thousands of women in Berlin itself and in greater Germany uh, were subjected to massive, brutal rape by the invading Soviet army. Now, this was in retribution for what the Germans had done to the Russians when they invaded. But mm -hmm. this whole aspect of civilians mm -hmm. caught between these two warring armies uh, is part of the story we, we often don't tell when we talk about war. And I talk about it specifically in Berlin with the mass rapes of tens of thousands of women. Uh, but in our own history, <clears throat> in Petersburg during the Civil War, we had civilians caught. There wasn't rape on the, uh, any scale like that, but starvation. People reduced to, to uh, eating uh, mystery meat and local flocks of pigeons. And so that aspect of who's really affected by war is one of the other stories and threads that I'm weaving through this book. Mm. And also you mentioned that with the Red Army, they were uh, issued vodka before they got to uh, Berlin. So and maybe that accounts for some of the... That, that certainly seems to have been uh, a part of it. They, these men were uh, mostly men. There were women in the Soviet Red Army as well. Uh, they didn't have much in the way of, uh, you know, they weren't given cigarettes and razor blades and, uh, and candy and all the other things that uh, U.S. servicemen were provided with uh, for the most part. But they were doled out vodka. And this was a drunken rage when this million uh, men re finally reached Berlin. And again, it's, it's partly the, the tremendous uh, antagonism and hatred between the Germans and the Russians. And this is important to remember today, and this is why we study history in the first place, because, you know, we're seeing Russia as the bad boy of Europe right now, in a sense, with what's going on in Ukraine. And it's, I think it's important to have some perspective uh, on, on the Russian idea of, of what this this has meant in their history. They suffered far, far more grievously in World War II than any of the Western allies did. As bad as things were in Great Britain and uh, uh, in many other places, uh, the, the losses to the Soviet Union were extraordinary. Uh, and when you think about the Battle of uh, uh, Leningrad, for instance, lasting 900 days with millions of casualties, uh, people resorting to cannibalism, it really reduces war to its most basic, brutal level. And I think that's something else that I'm trying to write about in this book. And it's not to suggest that we should never go to war or we shouldn't, uh, that, that some war isn't necessary, but we should certainly always consider the impact of what these decisions to go to war mean, not only for the fighting men, but for the people who are trapped between 
Uh, Benjamin Franklin once said, there's never been a good war or a bad peace. And I'm not sure that that's true. In fact, uh, I'm quite certain it's not. But I think it's, it's an important question to weigh. And we're seeing that right now in, in, uh, in our politics. Uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Bush, former cover, Governor Bush of, of Florida, Jeb Bush, has said that um, he would do exactly the same thing his brother did with Iraq, uh, mm. which to me is a frightful statement to be making. Uh, it really suggests that he's learned nothing from the terrible experience we had in Iraq, which is the last chapter in the hidden history of America at war. That's tremendous fiasco. I focus on the Battle of Fallujah. Well, that is something you, you bring that up. Um, that Again, it's even in the subtitle of your book, The Hidden History of America at War, Untold Stories from Yorktown to Fallujah. I hate to say it. I, you know, I think I have a, a better concept of, of Yorktown than I do of Fallujah, and I've been Googling it uh, since I knew I was going to talk with you. I mean, it's, it's still in the news. I mean, right now, ISIS controls a good part of Fallujah. That's right. Ten years ago, now 11 years ago, the Marines went into Fallujah. And, and just to remind you of the, the incident that sparked that, and this is the, the, the opening of the chapter about Fallujah, uh, four men were caught by a mob in this uh, uh, industrial, hard, uh, rust, rusted old industrial city. They were caught by a mob, murdered. Uh, Two of them were uh, left hanging from a bridge. We all saw those pictures the next day. What many people didn't realize, Bob, is that those men were not soldiers. They were private security contractors. They were soldiers for hire, mercenaries, if you will, who worked for Blackwater. Uh, Mm -hmm. Back then, we didn't know that name. It's become somewhat notorious in recent times. And this is part of the story I tell in in the Iraq chapter is that uh, the United States had moved to the idea that we fight our wars with our soldiers to uh, a privatized uh, army. There were more private security contractors. Now, admittedly, some of them doing work like kitchen work and the, those sorts of things. But there were more of these private contractors in Iraq than there were actually uh, soldiers uh, in, in uniform. And so I think that that's one of the surprising and untold pieces of that story that many Americans uh, don't understand. And it fits again this theme of who fights our wars. We mm. went from this idea of you know, the farmer who picks up his trusty musket and runs off to defend the country to private contractors uh, fighting our wars for us in places like Iraq. And it gets so complex, I was going to say over there, but it's complex everywhere. When I was doing my little bit of uh, Googling, I found a recent... Uh, announcement, if you will, or news coverage that the Iraqi army and other militias that said volunteers are trying to reclaim uh, Fallujah. And it was sort of a, a name, you know, for a news organization that was the website. I thought, well, gee, I'll find out more about this. Uh, it was called Press TV. And they were made no bones about it right on the website. It's it's based in Iran. I mean, again, uh uh, to some extent, an enemy of ours, but in this particular case, they're supporting what the uh, like the Americans and the Iraqis want to do. Well, a great many people, and this is uh, you know where where you're when you're a historian, you have a memory. This <laughs> causes problems for some. There were a great many people who said at the time that we went into 
uh, Iraq uh, uh, as a subset of 9-11, which was mistaken uh, uh, notion. Uh, Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. But when we went in there, a great many people cautioned that you are going to, we, the United States, is going to create such a, a, a destabilizing force that is going to open the way for Iran, uh, you know, a, clearly an enemy of the United States in, in the view of most uh, American politicians. It's really going to open the way for them to expand their influence into Iraq. And these two countries, of course, once fought a war against each other it lasted about 10 years so we got into the thick of something without planning without appropriate uh, reason without certainly the foresight to see what the impact was going to be and that's one of the real lessons of war the unintended consequences and if we don't think about that a little bit we're going to get ourselves into trouble time and time and time again uh, again i'm not saying that there's never a reason to go to war never a reason to fight certainly there are but this is the most important decision i think a, a president and any politician gets to make uh, when to put american lives in harm's way and uh, all too often, I think, especially in recent history, it's been a little bit too easy to make that decision. Uh, and as we get into this high-tech era of uh, fighting with drones and cyber warfare, it makes it even easier. The other important part of that, I'm going to add, is that um, we don't have a lot of people who have anything to do with the military anymore. We just celebrated the end of the war in Europe, 70 years of, uh, after the fall of Berlin. That was a war where a great many Americans participated. Much larger percentage of families had somebody in the fight, uh, fighting in the war. Right now, about 1% of American families have somebody in uniform. And that's another theme that plays through the hidden history of America at war. Uh, we have to really be careful when we're making these decisions that affect this very small group of people that we take all the, the, the information and all of this history into account. Mm. Ken Davis uh, and his new book, The Hidden History of America at War, I, I, I find you know, talking to you about it, it seems to me, there's a, my opinion is that there's a certain difference between this uh, book and some of the others you've written that, that you have, uh, I don't know, maybe more of a, a stance that is controversial. Has that been uh, true, I mean, in your interviews and, and reviews and so on and so forth? Well, no, uh, you know, I think that the, this book, because it's about the most uh, significant thing that we do uh, when we, uh, as I said, put lives in harm's way, I think it, it's a, a book that has perhaps more of a, a point of view. And it's, again, it's not an anti-war book. I'm not saying that no war is, is justified or, or appropriate. Ben Franklin once said there's no good war or bad peace. I'm not sure that's true. Um, but I, I certainly think that this is a book with a, a, a point of view, which is that we can't just pay lip service to the people who are wearing the uniforms and talk about pride and patriotism and service and honoring their their duty without making sure that, first of all, if we send them into battle, we're doing it for the right reasons. And second of all, if we send them into, into battle, we make sure that they are properly trained, equipped, outfitted, 
uh, and given the tools they need to do the job, and then when they come back, really take care of them, not uh, have what we've seen year after year, and it's not one administration over another, because I can go back you know, a long time to the history of how uh, veterans have been scandalously treated in this country. It goes back to the beginnings of the Veterans Administration, which is in the, mm-hmm. the Harding uh, uh, years. President Harding uh, was the first president with a Veterans Administration. Immediately, uh, kickbacks and scandals. One of his uh, one of his uh, first cabinet secretaries to resign ends up in jail over taking kickbacks over VA hospitals. So. That goes back to 1920. So this is a very, very old story. Yes, and it it seems. I mean, is it about money? I mean, after the war ends and the cheering stops or the crying stops, then it, it's a, it's just another government expense. Well, it's always about money, isn't it? In some degrees, Bob, and and that's um, it's that's a somewhat fairly cynical attitude, but it's certainly true uh, in in the case of. Of war and uh, the Defense Department, and I, you know, I write about the fact that there really was no defense establishment as we understand it today. We all think of the Pentagon as if it always existed. It's a creation of World War II, of course. Um, the founding fathers, and again, this goes back to the beginning of the country, so I'm carrying this thread through a couple hundred years. The founding fathers were very, very mm-hmm. reluctant to establish a standing army. They didn't trust it. They didn't want to pay for it. D- uh, thought- Ken, I'm awful sorry. We're, we're just out of time. I thank you very much for joining us. There's more about all this in the hidden history of America at war. This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudborn.